0: subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Emily Nicola, host of Detour. Hi, Jesse. Hi. On the show today, War of the Words. We're going to do a fact check on some of the early claims and posts that are circulating about the war in the Middle East and the conversation you can't have about that war. Seems to be the kind of conversations you and I always have, Emily.
1: Yeah, no, we love the, those conversations, the ones we can have.
2: <laughs> Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. And a warning, we will be talking in detail today about some of the worst news that you can imagine, including sexual assault and violence against children. So please take care. This episode is brought to everybody by Lauren Sawant, Sasha Richer, Nick duran Kyle Weens. Neil Douglas Fraser, Lisa Gal, Wade Potts, and we asked broadcaster Terry O'Reilly if Canada is better or worse because of Canada land. Journalism is clearly under siege right now. There's a lot of mistrust and distrust and misinformation. I think Canada land asks a lot of the right questions because they're independent. I don't agree with everything I hear, but I think that's actually important. I think that might be the point. And I really enjoy the long-form series that Canada Land does, like when Commons did that deep dive into the world of hockey, which was eye-opening, to say the least. So, is Canada better or worse because of Canada Land? Well, my vote is better. Emily, that was uh, kind of Terry O'Reilly to say. The series that Commons did on hockey just won the gold award at the Signal Awards, which is like the Oscars of podcast. Maybe it's the Golden Globes. I'm not sure. There's two different award shows vying for, but they just won the gold award. I'm I'm so proud of them. This is the only opportunity I'm going to get in my life to hold a sports-related trophy in my hands.
1: Oh, that's good. <laughs> good for you, Jesse.
2: <laughs> Listen, it's crowdfunding month, and when I think about the work that they're doing over at Commons, it really speaks to me about Just what Canada is so terrible at, like, I couldn't believe that nobody had done any long-form journalistic work into the dark side of hockey. Even with all of the news this past 12 months coming out of hockey, we were the first to do this journalistic documentary series about the history of hockey. It's like wonderful to see them honored in this way. Like, this is like, they're going against all of the sports documentaries, like the 30 for 30. Like, this is like all of the best podcasts in the world and we were deemed the best. So I just want to congratulate my colleagues over there and yeah, encourage people. Like we just, we need it now. I know it's like undignified. Like would Canada be worse off without us? Think about it. But like, those are the stakes that we're up against here. Everything is just more dire than ever in terms of the odds that are stacked against journalism, I I don't think it's an overstatement to say that journalism is fighting for its life right now. And we take this one month out of the year to make a direct appeal for people to support Canada land and and to think about that, like legitimately, like what, what do you think? Should we be here? Do you value it? Because it's the only way that we stick around is if people support it.
1: What do I think? I think it's awesome. (laughs) I think we really should be doing this and we're gonna be, you know, talking about the the topic of the day just in a minute, but just how hard it is to even just be looking at what is true, what is not true. And when you see the, the stake of the world right now, having quality journalism feels like it's more important than ever. So Support us.
2: I did note that in Terry's response that this is a widely felt thing, and I think we're going to see evidence of it today. It's so hard to figure out what information you can trust and what you mm-hmm. can't. We do, we do a lot of different types of work here, but uh, what we're going to do today, diving into information people are getting and just sort of helping you understand, like, did that happen or did it not happen? Sometimes that's the work that people need. It takes so much time. It's incredible to me how quickly misinformation can spread and how much time it takes to untangle it. I don't know how much more direct I can put this, please support journalism. Please support Canada land, please support news in Canada, or we will not have any. And we want to do our best work for you. We want to win awards. We want to do our best work, not to win awards, but it's nice to win awards. We want to make you proud. I feel pretty proud of commons today. Go to Canada slash join. If you become a member, you will get access to commons new season, all about cults in Canada before anybody else, and you'll get all kinds of other wonderful perks and bonus things. We have an interview with Margaret Atwood, unlike anything you've heard, I think. We're going to be putting up more and more of this stuff all month. Please go to canadaland.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes. Thank you. Okay, Emily, shall we do the show?
0: Yes, sure.
2: Let's get into it.
0: Israelis living in the areas surrounding the Gaza Strip have been evacuated and rockets continue to shoot out of the enclave. The more than two million Palestinian people inside are trapped, as it is pummeled by heavy weaponry day and night.
1: Uh, We walk door after door, we kill a lot of the terrorists. They are very bad. They cut head of children, cut head of women. One moment we're running away from missiles, and the next moment we're running away from bullets. I honestly did not think I was gonna make it. I don't know how it is going to end, but the end will not
2: be happy for nobody. Emily uh Saturday was an awful, awful day. It was, uh, I think the phrase that people are familiar with now, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. And I think by now people are familiar with the basic timeline and the overview of what happened. But what happened online and what this conflict unleashed was, uh, it's been described as the worst barrage of disinformation and informational chaos in history, uh, sort of a perfect storm. There have been some reports just on how people who are tasked to fact check and debunk and check claims were just deluged. The changes to Twitter couldn't have happened at a worse time. The information reported that on Twitter X whatever, Elon Musk stopped using software that Twitter had used to identify organized misinformation. And combining that with the change to the blue checkmark policy, it created a circumstance where rather than suppressing misinformation, it amplified it. Almost instantly, new information would get torqued or skewed, or people would contest it and refute it. And sometimes misinformation would be used to refute real things. So there's fake things that people believed as truth. There were true things that people tried to debunk as fake. We're going to post a list of open source intelligence accounts, OSINT, like people who are doing the hard work, they're really like blowing into a hurricane, trying to push back against all the stuff that's going around. My hesitation since this broke out was like, I don't want to add any noise to this unless I can be of some use or service. And maybe the best thing we can do as we begin our show today is just like talk about some of the things that gained the most traction that were false. Sure, let's do it. Okay. In general terms, there was a, a lot of tactics used where fake footage or old footage was passed off as new. There was video game footage that was passed off as like video footage of, of a Hamas attack. There was videos of like firework celebrations in Algeria that were passed off as Israeli strikes on Hamas. A lot of hearts and mind stuff, like here's soccer hero Ronaldo holding the Palestinian flag. That was a fake image. There were images from the Syrian civil war repurposed as if to look like it had happened this weekend and presented as This is happening in Gaza right now. It was actually something that had happened in Syria. This is confusing as well because there were videos, uh, oh, look, they're using white phosphorus, this banned weapon. And in fact, that was video footage of Syria, mm. but now there are new videos that purportedly show white phosphorus being used in Gaza. And I don't know if those ones are real or false. There's also been widely circulated news about the political impacts. Is this going to mean that the normalization talks between Israel and Saudi Arabia are going to be compromised almost immediately? It looked like news reports that like Saudi Arabia has called off talks with Israel. That turned out to be a fake report. And then even, like, the Wall Street Journal had this big report about they have proven that Iran funded the Hamas attack. And all of their sourcing was from unnamed Hamas sources, whereas Hamas officially denies that, as does Iran. And that story is kind of falling apart. So that just might be misreporting, not necessarily intentional misinformation. But no one has been able to independently verify that. People, by the way, the BBC's Cheyenne Sardarizadeh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, has been doing incredible work fact-checking one of the accounts that we'll put in the, in the links here. But I want to kind of get very specific about a couple of the most inflammatory accounts that are becoming part of like an informational war campaign. And I'm sure you've seen, Emily, the accounts and uh, claims of Hamas using rape as a weapon of war. Yes, as far as I have been able to determine, the early accounts of this all came from one article on the website Tablet that was written by Liel Libowitz, who used to do work for the Israeli Defense Forces in their, in their communications. He interviewed survivors of the massacre that took place at the Rave and quoted an unnamed survivor as saying that women have been raped at the area of the Rave next to their friends' bodies dead bodies. That's sort of the one source that later was seized upon in millions and millions of tweets and accounts that uh, Hamas is is, uh, not just killing people but raping people. And I haven't seen any other media independently confirm that that has happened at that rave. I will say that there is photographic evidence that is suggestive of sexual assault by Hamas CNN authenticated a video that a lot of people have seen where a woman is sort of dragged by her hair out of a Jeep by a Hamas militant and she's bloodied and the seat of her pants are completely covered in blood. And BBC identified another young woman who's been identified as Shani Luke. A lot of people have seen this horrible image gone viral of uh, Hamas back in Gaza parading the body of a young woman through the streets in the back of a pickup truck. You can't tell if she's unconscious or dead. Her mother has reason to believe that she's alive. A report later contained that information, but she's uh, stripped to her underwear. Her mother was able to identify her by her hair and her tattoos. And we see Hamas militants parading the body, sitting on the body. Her legs are bent at unnatural angles. A man grabs her hair, another man spits on her body. So she's sort of um, being paraded around as a trophy of war. And I think that's suggestive of sexual assault. So that's essentially, if you dig into this, uh, what exists at this moment in terms of accounts of sexual assault. This does not get easier at this point. The other thing that a lot of people are hearing about are murdered infants and children by Hamas. The specific claim that has become very controversial is uh, a claim that came from the Kfar Aza kibbutz news organization, I-24. A bunch of reporters were granted access to the site of the massacre at this kibbutz. Foreign press were allowed to come in and talk to the soldiers, I believe after bodies had been removed from the site. And a soldier told an I-24 reporter that um, about 40 children and babies had been killed and their bodies uh, taken away in gurneys. And that some of the babies were beheaded. This quickly became 40 babies beheaded. And the reporter clarified, I I didn't say that there were 40 babies beheaded. I said that according to my sources, there's something like, we don't have an exact count here. We don't know how many were, how many were beheaded and how many were killed otherwise, but it seems like it's those, those are the numbers and it's children and babies. And now this has become a point at which a lot of people are saying fake news, fake news. She's walking it back. Who else has verified this? We're just hearing this from this one reporter. I do not know what the, the bottom line here is. I can tell you, though, that she is not the only reporter. There is a French reporter from the news organization LCI who says that she has independently confirmed this. That Her sources include the Israeli Army, Internal Intelligence Service, and she has received atrocious images which reached me and which I was able to cross-check. We later got similar accounts from CNN.
0: This is the saddest part of liberating and taking back control of this kibbutz. It's been a two-day fight. There are bodies everywhere. There were so many murdered members of this kibbutz. Men, women, children, hands-bound, shot, executed, heads cut.
2: And later, CBS News confirmed this as well.
1: It's really hard to l- Just listening to you, I think a lot of the listeners are just Probably just like I am right now, having a hard time just, because uh, uh, the thing about podcasting is that you just hear so you can picture in your head, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of images that are probably circulating in our in our listeners' uh, mind right now.
2: Everyone is so traumatized right now, and yet this is sort of uh, the duty to bear witness. I don't want to get too thoughtful about this just yet. We'll we'll talk on the back half of the show about, you know, I I guess what we're going through in some of the wider context. I guess all I'll say, because I'm getting into such graphic detail and it's so awful, is that it is important to know just like what can you believe, what happened and what didn't happen, because it's so emotional and it's so divisive and political. And there are sides who are weaponizing information almost instantly. So we have to start the work of separating fact from fiction. So I think people should be very, very careful at this early moment in calling something a lie or trying to debunk information. And I think it's a hard thing to balance, trying to figure out what's true. But when we see slight discrepancies or information hasn't come in yet, what I'm hearing from people in Israel uh, who I'm speaking to and from journalists covering this is that we're still in a hazy period this is just days away from a thousand people killed. And the exact manner in which they were killed and how it was done, it's going to take time to get that historical record together. And the early news reports in this atmosphere with so much noise and static, it's not surprising that some details later, numbers change slightly, but that work will be done and we will know what happened. Maybe it's an opportunity to wait before weighing in.
1: Right. I agree with you that you know, when um, war is a mess and attacks like this are always um, super messy. And if we compare this to other recent historical events where you've had attacks like that, it always takes some time for people to get their facts straight. People tend to measure numbers in terms of their emotions. So if it the pain is a lot, the most is going to feel like the truest number. And so we need to be careful about that too. But yeah. I guess the question that I have is, what's the goal here? Like, what does it achieve to believe something or not to believe something? And I think that's a question that we have to wrestle with in the sense that if the goal is to say that these people are are monsters or that these people deserve what they got or whatever, there's going to be this instinct to either minimize or maximize what's been going on. I think we need to be careful about what those instincts are because if we look at the facts or you know, the scrapes of facts that we have and we're not careful about what our feelings actually are. We don't know how those feelings are actually impacting the way we are looking at the information that we have or the
2: misinformation
1: that we have. Just be careful about how our hearts are putting a filter into everything that we see and read right now.
2: I I think that's very good advice. And I, I think, you know, everybody who follows this in any way has strong feelings about it, but we hope that what people believe will be based on what happened. And so we have to start with truth. Right. Taking our conversation to Canada, there has been a lot of controversy and anger over a CBC memo that got leaked. And I've been able to confirm that this is a legitimate CBC memo. And this was a directive to CBC journalists not to call the Hamas militants terrorists. According to this memo, that's a politicized term and if you use it, it should be in quotation marks and make clear to your audience that it's, it's a matter of opinion whether they're terrorists or not. And that's uh, becoming a, an inflammatory thing. On the one side, people saying, well, if, if that's not terrorism, what is? The first thing I would say is that this is not new policy from CBC. This has been their policy when, when referring to Hamas or otherwise for a long time now. And there's a, like, a large semantic background to this uh, policy. I understand the argument, well, why wouldn't you call them terrorists? But then there's the counter argument. well, it does your definition of terrorism then cover things that Israel has done? And CBC News is not about to start calling Israel terrorists. Whatever we want to say about CBC, they would be one of the only news organizations in the world to call Israeli soldiers that as a matter of like a style guide. So their solution was, let's call them something other than terrorists. So the terminology that they've gone with in most instances is Hamas fighter. That's problematic too when you're talking about the murder of of children and babies and not just children and babies. And so that's become controversial too. Is is that a matter of opinion? Who are they fighting? What's the fight? I think of a woman who I am connected to. Vivian Silver, a lot of people read about her in the Globe and Mail. She is a peace activist, 74 years old, who founded a group called Women Wage Peace. And what she did, uh, among other volunteer activities, she would drive sick people from Gaza to Israeli hospitals. And she has been taken hostage. She is the cousin of my aunt. Um, I don't know her. I'm not claiming any kind of anything based on that. It's uh, mm. This is what my cousins and members of my family are wondering is what's going to happen with her. And they're, they're hoping that against hope, I think, that it works out okay. And to describe her altercation with somebody from Hamas as an altercation with a fighter I don't know if that terminology is neutral either. So I don't know. Uh, we're going with militant over here. You know, I'm just trying to be descriptive.
1: Mm. I'm just thinking that that's the same terminology that's used to describe ISIS as well. We're talking about ISIS fighters usually and news supporting mm-hmm. Regardless of what ISIS was up to, that's the word that they went on to. So I think, I think the logic is probably trying to keep not having discrepancies in terms of what kind of vocabulary they're used before. And the thing about words is that it's really hard to get any kind of connotations out of them. I just have a lot of empathy for people trying to find words that do not trigger anyone (laughs) this week. It's like impossible. There's always going to be people criticizing their job and there's always things that they could do better. But like, fuck, this is, you cannot find words that nobody's going to have something to say about. Because that's the thing that words do. They describe realities and assign the meaning to reality. That's what words do. Yeah. Yeah. And because people don't agree on the meaning of reality, there's always going to be issues with word.
2: It's incredible to me how much of this comes down to and what people fight about here are these discrepancies about words or what they really mean. Mm -hmm. And when you put that up against the physical realities— for Gazans and for Israelis, right? Like this is an impossible task, not tr- triggering or, or not being seen as on one side or the other is, feels increasingly impossible. The next thing domestically, Olivia Chow has been lambasted by interest from either side of this conflict. I'll just try to shed light on this. She denounced the rallies as being pro-Hamas. And this was a source of a lot of controversy that a lot of people I think who went to the pro-Palestinian rallies in Toronto and elsewhere did not believe that they were cheering on these atrocities, that they were not cheering on Hamas. And Olivia Chow's interpretation of this was offensive to people. The reason why people believe these to be pro-Hamas protests in Toronto and Montreal, those are the two that I've read the organizers' messaging, is because they are explicitly advertised as uh, celebrations of Hamas. This is what was said by the Palestinian youth movement in Toronto. Let's celebrate the heroic resistance in Gaza with over 30 Zionist hostages. It's now over 100. The resistance's offensive attack has shaped a new precedent for our national liberation struggle, and we remain steadfast in our right to resist by any means necessary. We call on our people in the far diaspora in Toronto to uplift and honor our resistance and our murders. Similarly, the language from Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights, McGill, explicitly defined this rally as a celebration of Hamas as, as heroes. I don't believe that everybody who attended those rallies read this literature. I know that a lot of people were there to lend support to the idea of a free Palestine. But if you want to know where the idea came from, The reason why politicians denounce this as a pro-Hamas series of rallies is because that's explicit in messages like that.
1: I don't know that they wouldn't have done that anyway, regardless of the organizers. But sure, those organizers didn't have at all.
2: (laughs) No. And and I'll I'll say this. I know that uh, Jewish groups were specifically asking for these protests to be shut down, not because they felt... Oh, I don't agree with that, but because they felt that there was a high probability that hate speech would occur. And I am not aware that there was hate speech. I am not aware that there was violence. I've gone over the reporting of these protests and these rallies, and as far as I'm able to discern, these were peaceful protests. Um, I believe that a Hamas flag was waved at the Toronto rally. So uh, some people will say that, well, that there is hate speech. I know that in Edmonton, a speaker was saying there are no civilians in Israel. It's all about the words. People are saying, well, if there are no civilians in Israel, you're calling for genocide in Israel. But, you know, if we are to define hate speech as explicitly anti-Jewish, I'm not aware of any messaging that I think would withstand a legal test of of what Canada considers hate speech.
1: Yeah, the protest bit has been very tricky because... One thing that's been on my mind a lot, there's been a lot of people over the last couple of days that have compared the attacks by the Hamas to kind of Pearl Harbor or or 9-11 or something in terms of the shock of how many Israeli deaths. When those comparisons are are made, one of the things that, that have come to mind is just when Pearl Harbor happened, there were days and weeks of just grieving for the American soldiers and whatnot. And then... War in Japan and then atomic bomb. And then the same thing with 9-11, you know, the the time for response and then that led to the invasion of Iraq. You had a lot of time there and so people were able to mourn and be in shock of what happened and just deal with the horror. But as the 21st century is accelerating what's going on, there is not that time and it's making everybody feelings being on top of one another. There is no time to grieve what happened and there's no waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so when I think of those rallies this weekend, I think some of the organizers, there's just a very horrendous joy that happened. But I think a lot of the people were just, first of all, afraid of the response that is already going on as we're speaking now. And that on top of people being, how can you be in the streets waving those flags right now? while Mm -hmm. The level of emotions, I think, partly speaks to just the lack of time that we have. We used to have way more time to be able to have one event after the other. And now there is none of that. And so people are just, how can you be talking about free Palestine while, you know, the buddies are still warm? And that's basically the psychological clusterfuck. <laughs> that uh, I think a lot of people have been, or at least that I've been in myself as well. You have to deal with everything at the same time, trying to understand everything at the same time. And there is not even the time to get your facts straight. And you're trying to figure out what the next step is going to be. That's uh, 2023 for us.
2: I think that a really astute observation, and I think that this is an unprecedented type of a trauma, an unprecedented version of, you know, familiar historical events, the ability to document these things as they happen, the fact that things are instantly turned to propaganda, the, the fact that things that didn't happen are instantly circulated as real. There is no time. There is no, you can't catch your breath. And then the way that everybody's responses gets interpreted by everybody else, we really are on the brink of just pure chaos. And so the impossibility of making any sense of this right now... <sighs> What else can we do? Emily, there's, uh, I I think that what happened is more important than what you and I think about it, but I I do think there's a place for a conversation about our thoughts on this and also just to provide some wider context. So let's do some ads and stuff and then come back with that. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs, large and small, new in seasoned Squarespace makes it easy every step of the way. From building your website to engaging with your audience to selling products, content, and even time. you can rest assured that it will be all on your terms and if you use our ten percent off coupon at squarespace.com slash Canadaland, you can even save some money on your first purchase of a website or domain. start with a best in class professional website template with designs that work for everyone and customize every detail with reimagined drag and drop technology for desktop or mobile. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so your idea, brand or business stands out online on every device. And with the new asset library, you will be able to manage all your files from one central hub, then use them across the Squarespace platform. Upload, organize and access all your content from one place. Head to squarespace.com slash Canada land for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash Canada land to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash Canada land. Emily, uh, huge news like uh, this week's sort of sucks the oxygen out of everything. And it can be hard to even think about anything else. And yet the world keeps turning. Other things keep happening. Is there anything you'd like to duly note today?
1: No, that's the thing. You know, Jesse, it's one of these weeks where I think it's basically impossible, at least for me personally, to think about anything else. And when you go on any Canadian news website, it's like this total eclipse where there's basically nothing else that's happening and everything else you might want to talking about feels insignificant. But I just want to say that, you know, Land, obviously, we're about criticizing and discussing Canadian news. But if you're the kind of person that just goes on either Canadian newspaper or news outlet websites for everything, that's really not the week for you to be doing that please just Google other websites from other international news outlets and as many of them as possible. Trying to get out of Canada, out of North America, maybe out of Europe also, and just trying to have a sense of how the rest of the world is looking at it and looking at you know the fact that there's going to be obviously different editorial lines around it. And it's not about taking any one of them at face value, but it's about getting out of our little Canadian bubble because Canadian media are so small and everybody's trying to play safe and there are ways in which in terms of the analysis that you might get or not, there's some good things in terms of people trying to play safe, but there's also some gaps that come out of that. So just get out of Canada intellectually is I think one of the best things that we can do right now to have a full sense of uh, what's going on, taking everything that we read obviously with a grain of salt, but yeah, no, just get out of Canadian media And then when you come back to it, you're going to get back to it with more context is what I would say this week.
2: I think that's great advice. I think that this is still an incredible magic power of the internet to be able to read news from around the world. And I think just the caveat is just look up the news source you're reading in Wikipedia to make sure it's for real. When you're encountering new brands for the first time, you lose that context. And there's a lot of stuff out there that just uh, ain't real. So duly noted, and that actually gets me right into mine, which is um, we just published an investigation into what turns out to be a foreign misinformation service run out of Cairo, but you wouldn't know it because they specialize in anti-Trudeau hate propaganda, and they pass themselves off as like domestic media. And we got to the bottom of this. A lot of people might have missed it because of everything else that was going on. But uh, our Monday episode and accompanying article on our website will give you our pretty interesting expose of street politics, Canada. Did you didn't know that, Jesse? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health and because you listen to the show you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com/canadaland once again it's betterhelp.com along with 5 free travel packs. You'll get a free 1-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com/canadaland. That is drinkag1.com/canadaland. Check it out. Emily, I want to share with you a couple of things that have been said by really prominent Canadian journalists, kind of opinion people. David Frum of The Atlantic Monthly, he had this series of tweets that began with the following, in the aftermath of the most horrific mass murder and mass rape of Jews since the Nazi Holocaust, many are volunteering to provide, quote unquote, context for anti-Semitic atrocity. Very similar to a sentiment that Robin Urbach of The Globe and Mail tweeted. She said, I can't think of another scenario where we see literally the most depraved atrocities being carried out against civilians and supposed intellectuals instantly rush online to insist we consider the context. This is very strange to me, Emily, for journalists to be like denouncing the search for context, that there's something morally off base in trying to understand the context under which the Hamas invasion happened.
1: Once again, it's not something that surprises me. I don't know. I think I'm a little bit younger than you. The first big political event that I remember as, you know, I'm old enough to understand things right now is is 9-11. And it was exactly the same back then. People started seeing things in black and white, good and evil. And if you were seeing anything else, you were deemed uh, off topic or just insensitive. Mm -hmm. And so that happens in a lot of different contexts. To answer one of the questions that you just quoted, yes, I can think of other moments where this has happened and then people were looking for context.
2: I think it's worse than simply accusing people of being insensitive. I think that's there for sure. We're hearing like, you know, mm-hmm. the sneer uh, from Robin Urbach at supposed intellectuals. Like, this is an emotional moment. This is a grieving moment. We don't want to hear your context. There definitely is that side to it of like bad manners. or But there's another side to it, too, where I think people are saying— It's
1: unsystematic to look for context.
2: Well, I think it's interpreted as if you are going to start talking about how what happened on Saturday and what Hamas did bears any relationship to the occupation, that is instantly interpreted as a justification. And that's a very hard rhetorical device to get out of. Like, anyone just simply trying to understand this, you cannot understand. Like, even just explaining it to a child, well, what is this fence that they bulldozed? Why did they do it? Who are they? You must contend with the reality of occupation, and you must explain what Gaza is, and you must accept the facts of the daily human rights catastrophe that is Gaza. But we're at a moment where those words, like, I know people, like, oh, okay, here we go. It's a justification. It's a rationalization. You get very quickly to, he's saying they deserved it. Mm -hmm. More violence was inevitable. Is not the same thing as saying they deserved it.
1: Yeah, what you say makes me uh, question when is the right time to talk about the abuse against the human rights of the Palestinian people in Canadian media? And that's the thing, right? It's like now is really not the time because of what happened on Saturday. But then when was the time? When was the nonviolent way to do it that was acceptable? It wasn't the UN, mm-hmm. it's not BDS. So what is it? And so I think one way to look at those quotes and be is to look at, you know, there's obviously, you know, rhetorical issues there and a line not being drawn between explanation and justification. But there's also the fact that we don't want to talk about Palestinian, the Palestinian people. We don't want to talk about it. And now it's because of what happened. But last week or three months ago when six months from now, it's going to be for a different reason. But there's always going to be a good reason not to talk about it.
2: I think that just looking back at what you said in our earlier conversation, to this question of bad manners and, you know, give these traumatized people a chance to grieve, why do you have to have these rallies now? This is in such poor taste, et cetera, et cetera. I think that people understand that the Israeli response follows the atrocities so quickly that it is exactly in this moment when policy is formed and a response is formed. And so, if the idea is that they need to wait, will that be too late to be heard?
1: I'm just on the Al Jazeera website right now. Mm -hmm. And we're on Wednesday, and the information they have is that the death toll in Gaza in terms of the response is now at least 950 Palestinians, including 260 children. And the power just went out in uh, all of Gaza. There is one power plant. Yeah, And so, there are Palestinian doctors who are pleading because uh, they cannot run hospitals without power and that's the thing with Gaza, is that there's the people who are killed by, you know, the bombs and whatnot, but there's also the people who are killed systemically by the lack of food and water and electricity and just the inability to leave to get urgent medical care. And so the life expectancy kills people in a different way. We don't have the time to be, let's put that aside, and talk about Israeli death, and then we'll deal with Palestinians in a different episode. Like, all of that is happening right now. And there's a lot of fear because the means in terms of weaponry in this conflict has have always been incredibly unequal. So, yeah, that, that's what makes it so difficult and so emotional to actually look at those numbers and be where Wednesday, you guys are listening to this on Thursday. I don't know what Thursday is going to be looking like.
2: Not good. You know, things are going to get much, much worse. The effects are simultaneous. Everything happens at the same time. And Mm -hmm. this is a, like a fulcrum. This is a turning point. It's a turning point for policy. And that's not something that I I even know that this conversation about facts and media and opinions will have the slightest bit of influence over. I'm not even talking about our conversation, but all of it. Mm -hmm. But it, it is a decisive moment for everybody who is touched by this. And I think people need to be really, really aware that interests on either side are seizing upon this moment to make demands of us. It's an extension of these calls for like, now is not the time for context even. Well, if this is rendered explicit, again, in tablet by the same author, Lev Leibovitz, who, <sighs> the article is titled Us and Them. Your only two choices are Zionism and anti-Zionism, Pick wisely. Wow. And he writes, you can no longer be a Zionist who supports a two-state solution. You can no longer see yourself as a Zionist who believes in a binational democracy shared with Arab neighbors. I don't know by what authority, by fiat he is seizing. He's telling me what I can and cannot be. I know that people are feeling the same way. I've had conversations with friends and colleagues who feel like they can't publicly express any sympathy for the israeli victims who they obviously recognize the atrocities of what happened but they feel that to say so publicly to express sympathy for the victims of the survivors would be to lend comfort to the enemy and to help build the case for what is already happening in gaza so people are being told as a political instructive you must separate yourself from your own humanity i've talked to people who say oh, i can't be publicly seen to be policing the resistance, because there are these demands being made. Will you denounce Hamas before anything else we talk about? And this shuts down people's ability to express basic humanity. The exact same thing is happening on either side. And and so I'm being told, you know, if you want a safe Israel, everybody's got to get onside against the Arabs. We all need to stand with Israel, whatever it does next. And, you know, a week ago, Israelis by the thousands were turning out week after week, to protest the Netanyahu government. But now, this context to connect anything with the occupation, that lends comfort to our enemies. Do you know where where Jews are still allowed to criticize Israel? Where? Israel. (laughs) In in Israel. What we are being told in the diaspora Mm -hmm. is very different. …than the conversation that's taking place in Israel. This is from the editorial board of Haaretz, which is one of the largest newspapers in Israel. Yeah. The disaster that befell Israel is the clear responsibility of one person, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, who has prided himself on his vast political experience and irreplaceable wisdom in security matters— who completely failed to identify the dangers he was consciously leading Israel into when establishing a government of annexation and dispossession, and when he appointed these horrible racists to key positions while embracing a foreign policy that openly ignored the existence and rights of Palestinians. There, you are not a traitor to make the obvious conclusion, which is if you're going to put a corrupt thug like Netanyahu in power, the deal is— He keeps Israelis safe, and he could not have failed more miserably.
1: You know, I often hear, and that's a great example, that you can criticize Israel better in Israel than in the diaspora, and that's very true in some ways. There's also quite a few Israelis who are going to Canada, sometimes as international students and whatnot, because of the very hard limits on academic freedom when you're trying to do work criticizing Israeli nationalism when... You are in Israel so it's a thing where I guess the more mobile you are <laughs> maybe the more freedom you you have it's very tricky and I and I just want to say that it's hard for everybody but one thing that's been on my mind is both the I guess the Israeli left and the people in the diaspora who have been supporting Palestinians here it's probably harder than ever to hold that line in terms of because it's family conflicts right it's family conflicts most of the time mm-hmm it's very tricky to also be joining those kind of resistance or, or critiques when you see people lacking respect for the death that we've seen as well. And so it puts people in between a, a rock and a hard place. And the same thing goes as well for a lot of people who are constantly, you know, trying to name, you know, the occupation and the, and the settlement and everything that's been going on and our now having to defend themselves from being associated with uh, the Hamas every time they open their mouth, it's exhausting. And I think a lot of us are, you know, watching this and being traumatized, but there, there's different level of trauma, you know, for Palestinians who are in Canada, for people for whom it's their families, their relationships. They can be broken by every word that they choose the wrong word or whatnot or choose the wrong timing or the wrong timing and people get into their feelings. Yeah, It's the people who are having the hardest time talking probably about what's going on that have the most to say. If you're having a hard time figuring out what's the right way to talk about this, you're probably the person that we should be hearing about the most.
2: And sadly, all of those conversations or most of them seem to be happening in private. This is a moment where the angriest people and the most hateful people are seizing the stage and they're bullying the most human conversations into like dirty secrets. Like, Who relates to me and my family right now the feeling of terror and fear and what's going to happen and will people that we love are connected to survive this and what does the future hold and maybe the whole world hates us and oh my god I can't believe nobody cared what just happened to people just like me who possibly out there feels the same way we do mm-hmm. the Palestinian diaspora like mm-hmm. that's who feels that way. And those conversations are almost forbidden, and I feel bullied. I feel that people are saying that you must pick a side, you must fight your enemy, and any contradictory thoughts or even humanistic thoughts must be banished from our brains. Emily, like, I think that Israel should exist, and I think that Palestine should be free. And if I'm going to fight for anything, it's the right to think both of those things. Mm. I'm going to protect my right to value human life on either side of that fence, and that's not both sidesism.
1: No, because you can say that, and then once you've said that, you go into how to how to get into it, and then you start to be okay. Here are the power dynamics. Here are this and are that. When people talk about both sidesism, what the, I think most people mean is lack of recognizing the power imbalance. I think is what people are talking about. They're not talking about we value human lives, whether they be Muslim or Jewish. I really hope that's not what the criticism is. You know, we've been talking about the people being, you know, you you are with us or, or against us. And I've been having George W. Bush voice in my head saying, you know, every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. And... We know where that leads. We have been dealing with the consequences of that for the last 20 plus years. I'm, I'm not talking about anyone in the Jewish or the Arab diaspora right now. I'm talking about, you know, good old WASPy Canadians, North Americans. Right now, I feel like we are reliving a uh, sort of that moment. Mm-hmm. And it scares me because the ability to hold different things to be true at the same time and to hold different peoples in your heart at the same time. I don't know if the opposite of having learned from our mistakes, I feel like our the space in our hearts has just been shrinking. <laughs> and our ability to understand complexity has just been shrinking, probably because we're exhausted, but it's, it's definitely not there for a lot of people.
2: It's the only thing we can do is to try to open that back up. There's no control or power. It's a moment of total powerlessness that everyone is feeling except for that, the ability to still give a shit about one another, the ability to find the nuanced. And 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 you have to be brave to do it, to actually consider a good reason why somebody w- might have gone to that rally is a forbidden thought in some conversations I'm having with people I care about very much. But that is the thought to fight for. That's the expression to fight for.
1: Yeah, Every interview script needs to end, it seems, with, uh, do you have hope for peace one day? Blah, blah, blah. And then it seems to be like every every news anchor needs to end every interview like that. And it kind of pisses me off because people seem to be thinking that peace is just this formal thing that's out there that's going to happen with like a different bunch of guys sitting around the table. But peace is something that all of us do. It's breaking up every day and choosing peace. Peace means holding space for people in your heart. Peace means listening to one another. Peace means not bullying people. Mm -hmm. It means being able to ask questions about other people's motives rather than assuming them. And it means being able to have hard conversation other than in just hush-hush ways, with the people that you've trust the most in your entire life because you don't feel safe speaking about what's really happening to you with anyone else. Um, When you're at that level emotionally, you're not at peace, even if you're here in Canada. And I feel like here, there are many ways in which in our universities, in our medias, we're feeling, you know, we're not at war, but there are elements of war culture that is definitely affecting all of us. And so, yeah, instead of being like, yeah, one day there might be peace, how about we just do peace as an action and just trying to do peace every day on this in the way that we report on this or talk about this if we're journalists, but as a way that we trying to reach out to other people of different faith in the community and trying to listen to their to their perspective on all of this and hold space for their mourning because that's the thing a lot of people are in mourning as well. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of different things that are happening, but let's just try to hold space for one another. I think that's what peace means to me.
2: Emily, this is a hard week to come on the show. Thank you for coming on Shortcuts. Thank you, Jesse. If you value the work that we do, if you value uh, the existence of journalism in this country, you, you need to support it or soon there will not be any. It is our crowdfunding month. Please go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click on the link in your show notes. I can be emailed about today's episode at Jesse at and I read everything you send. Emily. Where can people find you?
1: Not X. I mean, I'm still there, but uh, dumpster fire at this point. I don't want to invest time in energy unit. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram, which is a little bit more, I don't know, peaceful to me at this point. And obviously, Le Devoir and on my own show, Détour. Please listen to it every other Saturday.
2: And I understand that Détour is going to be covering this conflict as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. We're going to have uh, Michel Cormier, a former executive director of Radio-Canada, to be is going to be talking about us about how the hell do you get quote-unquote fair coverage on a kind of conflict like this, this Saturday?
2: Aha, uh-huh. check it out. This episode is produced by Jess Schmidt with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. Our theme music is by SoCult. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh, oh, oh,